Numbers chapter 13. And I confess to you all tonight, I am an addict. <laughs> I am addicted to the Word of God. Uh, I need you all. I need to be here. I need our midweek, especially. You know, I love our Sundays and our and our gatherings at that time. But I can't get from one Sunday to the next. I'm just not that strong. You know, I I, I understand some are. I don't know how they do it. I say that with deep sarcasm. <laughs> how we think we can get by day to day without the spirit of the living God, without his word. And some say, oh, I'm fine on my own. I got the spirit, I got the word on my own. Okay, you know, whatever works for you. But we need each other as well. We need the assembly of the saints. We need the word of God. And, and, and I'm telling you, it's those who are in the word and sharing in the fellowship who are strong in their faith. We're made strong by him. Numbers chapter 13. That was free, by the way. You don't have to pay for that tonight. I just threw that out there. Numbers chapter 13. Before we get there, I want you to hear the words spoken by Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 19. That's the next book that's coming around the bend for us. Lord willing, and the saints don't rise, we will be in Deuteronomy next. And what a book of prophecy that is. So we will enjoy that when we get there. But in Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 19, by way of reminder, Moses is talking to the people, and he says, Then we set out from Horeb, that is Sinai, the Mount of God, and went through all that great and terrible wilderness which you saw on the way to the hill country of the Amorites. And I love that, that great and terrible wilderness. Eleven days. Just an 11-day journey from Horeb to the hill country of the Amorites. But it was great and terrible because there were some great and terrible failures on their part. And there were some great and terrible actions on the part of God. And so it's an apt description, even though it was just a week and a half, it was a great and terrible time. So they came to the hill country of the Amorites. And then Moses continues and says, just as the Lord our God has commanded us, and we came to Kadesh Barnea. And it should have been their last stop in the wilderness. Kadesh should have been it. Right there on the edge of promise. All they had to do was trust God and go in. And tonight we will see the tragic failure in the wilderness. Kadesh Barnea. Kadesh means holy. Barnea means desert of a fugitive. It's perfect. The holy desert of a fugitive. Because it's in the fugitive desert that holiness is perfected in us. That's where we grow. That's where we're strengthened. We all know that. In fact, we can speak to it when we're not in the wilderness. We like to say that. Oh, yeah, those wilderness struggles made me a, a stronger, a greater believer. But when we're in the wilderness is when we're going, oh, Lord, I don't want to be in the wilderness. It's like I'm perfecting you. I don't want to be perfected. In the wilderness, the holy desert of a fugitive, holiness is perfected and, and vision is clarified. It's when we're going through the tough stuff that we begin to see more clearly and understand more purely. Vision, not in terms of seeing, but in terms of faith. As Jesus said, and we read on Sunday, because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see 
and yet believed. And I told you on Sunday, that's not only believing in Jesus. Oh, it's, it's believing in Jesus without seeing Jesus, truly. But it's also believing without seeing the outcome of our faith. Blessed are those who believe, though they have not seen. We have not seen the millennial kingdom. I believe it. We have not seen the new Jerusalem, new heaven, new earth. I believe it. We have not seen the end of this age and the rapture of the church. I believe it. Blessed are those who believe without seeing the outcome of our faith, trusting God to do it. God got them, as he promised, all the way to the hill country of the Amorites, to Kadesh, Barnea, the holy desert of a fugitive. But the sons of Israel, our example, had yet to understand this. They had yet to believe. So in Numbers chapter 13, verse 1, it says, The Lord then spoke to Moses, saying, Send out for yourself men, so that they may spy out the land of Canaan, which I am going to give to the sons of Israel. You shall send a man from each of their father's tribes, every one a leader among them. So God says, go ahead and send a, a squad, a, a, a spy team for a little reconnoiter, a little mission of spying out, checking out the land. Uh, the Lord tells Moses, that's cool, go do that. But whose idea was it? Again, back in Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 20, it says, I said to you, you have come to the hill country of the Amorites, which the Lord our God is about to give us. See, the Lord your God has placed the land before you. Go up, take possession as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has spoken to you. Do not fear and do not be dismayed. Verse 22 of Deuteronomy chapter 1 informs us, then all of you approached me and said, let us send men before us that they may search out the land for us and bring back to us word of the way by which we should go up and the cities which we shall enter. Moses said, well, the thing pleased me. And I took 12 of your men, one from each tribe, and they turned and went up into the hill country and came to the valley of Eshcol and spied it out. Turns out that the idea was devised in Israel. That it was not first God's idea to send spies into the land, but it was the Israelites' idea. It was the people's idea. It was like, whoa, why? let's not just go up trusting the Lord. Let's send spies and check it out. Let's go visit that church first and see if they're all right. Let's go do that thing or, or check out that thing that God, I think, is telling me to do. But let me test the waters first. You know, it, it's dipping the toe in the shallow end instead of diving into the deep end. Let's check it out first. But then, obviously, in Numbers, it says the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, send out for yourself men. So, so we see kind of a, a contradiction. Not at all. The people of Israel came and said, hey, we think it's a good idea to send spies. And the Lord endorsed the idea. Why? Why did Yahweh endorse their idea of sending spies to check out the land? And the answer is very simple. God knew exactly what they would see. Both the fatness and the fruit of the land and its inhabitants. All right? Let them see it. Because in the wilderness, God is saying, do you trust me? Do you trust me? I'll let you see the land. I'll let you see who you're going to be coming up against. And now the question is, do you trust me? 
Kadesh could have been Israel's defining moment. Instead, it became the headstone of their gravest failure, pun intended. Because while seeing, they could not believe. They saw the land, as you're going to see tonight, the beauty of it, the richness, the fullness of it. They saw the land. They also saw the inhabitants, the height of them, and the danger and the threat. And while seeing, they could not believe. Blessed are those who believe without seeing. How much more blessed would Israel have been if they had just gone and taken the land? Because that was the charge. Moses first said, go on up, take the land, take possession of it, occupy it. And they said, whoa, whoa, can we send spies? So they did. And that entire generation of Israel, minus two, would die as fugitives in the desert. Only their offspring will end up seeing and entering the promised land. Now, before we go any further into numbers, let's, let's put context into this. Turn over in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Because Paul describes a similar situation to the children of Israel there at Kadesh Barnea with the opportunity to take possession of the land, to go up and, and, and to to trust in the Lord, and so we are in a similar place. We keep making the application in the wilderness, Bamidbar, and that's us, and that's where we are. I believe in this age. I think it fits so perfectly with where the church is in this age, with where the world is in this age. Things are wild and out of control. We are in the wilderness, and it is terrible, and it is great. And the Apostle Paul said, that's life. Listen to this. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1. For we know... That if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. We are in an earthly tent. We are not in permanent homes. Which is why these bodies are, you know, they, they move about. They're not stationary. We're not like trees planted in the ground and we're stuck there our entire lives. No, we are in tents. We're mobile. And we're temporary, like tents are temporary. And he says, we know that if, we, if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens, for indeed, in this tent, we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven. And as much as we, having put it on, will not be found naked. For indeed, while we are in this tent, we groan, being burdened, because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed, so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. Paul describes our lives as an intense trek. Thank you. Intense. A trek intense. I'm feeling a little tension from you tonight. Sorry. <laughs> Maybe I should canvas the web for some better puns, do you think, Jake? Or pitch the whole thing. I know, I know, that really yurt. But Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, back it up, verse 17, for momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. That's where we're going. That is no tent. That is eternal. He says, while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. 
For the things which are seen are, in, are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Before they went and spied out the land, it was unseen to that entire generation, to all the Israelites. All they knew was that this was supposed to be theirs. God promised to give it to them. That's what they knew, or that's what they had been told. And that's all they needed to believe, but they wanted to see. Well, the things we see are temporal. We see the note that the doctor called. That's temporal. We see what husbands and wives are doing to divide marriages. That's temporal. We see cities continuing to be filled with riots. That's temporal. That's what our eyes see. That's not what we know is going to be the outcome. It's not what we know as far as where we are going. An eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. That's what Paul describes. That's what the Lord promises. But with that, yes, he tells us hardships are going to be part of the journey. Yep, that's part of the deal. Battles will be fought. There'll be giants ahead. Difficulties will be engaged. Things that should make the average person, the temporal, uh, natural man or woman, fearful, those things are all part of the deal. But God says to you, says to me in the wilderness, do you trust me? Do you trust me? And when our faith wavers and when we're uncertain and he sees us through another day, he gives us yet more reason to trust. He's going to see us through. God knew what they would see, and so he said, yeah, send in the spies. Maybe should have said send in the clowns, because 10 out of 12, that's what we're talking about here. Send them in. He improves the mission to show us and the people of Israel the difference between seeing with the eyes and perceiving with the heart. And I'm talking perceiving with the heart spiritually. And the difference, by the way, the difference between eyesight and Faith, or, or seeing with the heart, is faith. Eyesight, seeing with the eyes, vision of the heart, the difference is faith. Do you trust me? Do you trust me? Let that question ring in your ears as we study through tonight. Verse 3 of Numbers chapter 13. So Moses sent them from the wilderness of Paran at the command of the Lord, all of them men who were heads of the sons of Israel. And he's going to give us a new list. It's a different list than the one that we've already seen. Verse 3, so Moses, oh, sorry, verse 4, these were then their names from the tribe of Reuben, Shemua, the son of Zakur. From the tribe of Shimon, Shaphat, the son of Hori. From the tribe of Judah, Caleb, the son of Jephunneh. From the tribe of Issachar, Yigal, the son of Joseph. From the tribe of Ephraim, Hoshea, the son of Nun. From the tribe of Benjamin, Palti, the son of Raphu. From the tribe of Zebulun, Gadiel, the son of Sodi, from the tribe of Joseph, and from, uh, from the tribe of Manasseh, Gadi, the son of Susi, from the tribe of Dan, Amiel, the son of Gamali, from the tribe of Asher, Setur, son of Michael, from the tribe of Naphtali, Nachbi, the son of Vopsi, and from the tribe of Gad, Geul, the son of Machi, these are the names of the men whom Moses sent to spy out the land, but Moses called Hoshea, the son of Nun, Joshua. So it's a different list, as I said, of leaders of the 12 tribes, not the original leaders we saw back in chapter 1 of Numbers, but a different group of leaders, 
And, and, and these are different, I believe, because they're probably young bucks raring to go. These aren't the old guard. These aren't the, the older leaders of each of the tribes, maybe the elders of each of the tribes. These are the young guys ready. Their leadership, they're still in line. They're still part of it, but they're the young ones who have the energy to go spy, to go check it out. Shamua, whose name means renowned. Shaphat means judged. Caleb, it's an unfortunate name, means dog. Yigal means he redeems. Hosea means salvation. Palti means deliverance. Gadiel means God is my fortune. Gadi just means lucky. <laughs> Amiel means God is my kinsman. Setur means hidden. Nachvi is withdrawn. Geul is God is majesty. Now, I already messed with this list. You can feel free to do this on your own. I'm not going to try to make any more of the names as we did with the, the names in chapter 1. I don't think that there's a specific intended uh, sentence here when you put the names all together, but there is a greater issue. And the greater issue is this. Do you remember any of their names? Okay, Joshua. Without looking, Joshua and Caleb. And who else? Huh? <laughs> the lucky one. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, lucky. I remember. I remember. Listen. We never remember the rest of the names because they were not overcomers, because they did not have faith to see it through, because they failed in the wilderness for all the recognition of God in their names. Think about this. Their names like Gadiel. El, every time you hear El in a name, in a Hebrew name, God's in the name. Gadiel, Amiel, Geuel. But God is not recognized in their assessment of the land, and so their names would not be remembered, though they're written in Scripture. No one thinks of these guys. The question is, will they recognize God by faith? And you know the answer. Of the list, two names are remembered, as we said. You, both, you all shouted out very quickly and clearly, Joshua and Caleb. Of course you remember them, because of their faith. This is the first mention, by the way, of Caleb in the Bible, Caleb, I call him Mad Dog. You'll see why. His name means dog. Mad Dog Caleb. I love Caleb. He's mentioned another 30 times at least in the scriptures because 1 John chapter 5, verse 4 tells us whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is the one who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. You Bible students know with every letter that Jesus wrote to the churches of the Revelation, Revelation chapters 2 and 3, every letter ends with a promise to the overcomer. But listen to this promise. I find this fascinating when I think about Caleb. Revelation 2.26 says, He who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And you're going to see that in Caleb. A man who, well, he overcomes all the way. He keeps God's deeds to the very end, and he has authority as he comes into the promised land. Joshua, the only other one of this generation to enter the promised land. We've already seen his name. In fact, he's already been named seven times in Exodus before we come to this list and see that his actual name was Hosea. But Moses changed it. Verse 16 tells us, his name was Joshua, but Moses called him Joshua. Why? Well, what's, what's the difference? Hosea, listen to this, get this down. It's a very slight change, but it's profound. Hosea means salvation. 
Joshua means Yahweh is salvation. That's a mighty difference. And like Moses, Joshua, he's going to go on. His name will appear another after the seven times in Exodus. Another 214 times in the Bible. Because Joshua, and especially as we get into his book, we're going to see this. He is, like Moses before him, a personification, if you will, a picture and type of Yahweh's salvation in the greater Joshua, Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Christ. By the way, what does 12 minus 2 equal? Very good. (laughs) 10. What does 10 make you think of in the Bible? The Ten Commandments. In the Bible, when you see the number 10, the application is to the law. 10 is the number of the law in the Bible. Ten Commandments, it speaks of of Torah, makes us think of the law and the commandments. Listen, the law will always fail you because you will always fail the law. We can't keep the law. But with the two You got two great names, Joshua, the Lord's salvation, and Caleb, a dog. And between the two, we've got all we need, the Lord's salvation and a dog. Now, I'm a dog guy. I like dogs. I don't have a dog currently. We just finally got new carpet, and so I'm not really sure I'm excited about getting a new dog. But the Lord's salvation and a dog, and I think there's something here, and I'm just going to read you a story, and I'd like you to listen to this. It's out of Matthew 15, verse 21. It says, Jesus went away from there and withdrew into the district of Tyre and Sidon. And a Canaanite woman, note that, from that region came out and began to cry out, saying, have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. But he did not answer her a word. How rude of Jesus. (laughs) If you know Jesus, you know he's not being rude. But he did not answer her. And his disciples came and implored him, saying, send her away. She keeps shouting at us. (laughs) Here comes this Canaanite woman from the region of, of, of Tyre and Zidon. And she's shouting out. Lord, son of David, my daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. Lord, son of David, help us. She's just calling out, following them, crying out. Finally, verse 24, he answered and said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and began to bow down before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered and said, it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Ooh. You know, if you read that without context or understanding, if you read that without knowing the nature of Jesus, it sounds pretty rough. (laughs) Dogs, rough. Was I barking up the wrong tree? Sorry. Sometimes it's the tail that wags the dog. I'm just saying. It's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. If you were hearing that spoken in the language, and the way it's written in the Greek, the word is kunarion. Now, Bible students, again, remember when we talked about the lamb that was slain, it's arneon. That eon at the end of the word changes things. Arneon isn't just a lamb, it's a little lamb. Uh, The the cunarion for dog isn't dog. It's not right to take the bread from the kids and throw it to the mongrels. That's not what he's saying. Cunarion means little dog. It means puppy. 
it's a pet name. It's, it's actually kind of endearing. It's not meant to be harsh. It's, he's not being rude, but here's what Jesus is doing. Here's why he didn't answer her at first, and here's why he says it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs, the cunarion, the puppies. Jesus is reaching out in faith. Maybe I should put it this way. He is reaching out to see if there is faith. He's reaching out for faith. He's giving her opportunity. Does she really believe he's Lord? Or is she just trying to make noise? Does she really trust that he can do something? I am here for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. It's not right to take what's for them, the Jew first, as Paul said, and give it to the puppies. What's she gonna say? I love this. She says, yes, Lord, but even the dogs, even the puppies feed on the crumbs which fall from their master's table, which tells you she understands it was a pet he's talking about. She got it. It's not some scrappy, ugly, hairless, earless, blind, tailless dog named Lucky. <laughs> this is this is an affectionate pet of the house. He's referring to her in, in this way, and she says, yeah, but even when the table scraps fall off, the puppies get something. Wow. Jesus said to her, oh, woman, your faith is great. It shall be done for you as you wish. And her daughter was healed at once. Great story. See the parallel? Here we've got a little dog like Caleb with great faith. And you may feel like a dog sometimes. You may even have dog days sometimes. But, but it's faith. It's trusting the Lord. While the ten will fail. Because the law will fail you because you will fail the law. While the ten fail, the two. The Lord is salvation and the little dog who has faith. Who simply trusts in the Lord. He's going to see you through the wilderness. Well, back in verse 17, after the list is called out. When Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan, he said to them, go up there into the Negev. The Negev is that really dry, arid region in the south part of Israel, south of Hebron on down. Go up to the Negev, and then from there go up into the hill country and see what the land is like, and whether the people who live in it are strong or weak, and whether they're few or many. How is the land in which they live? Is it good or bad? And how are the cities in which they live? Are they like open camps or with fortifications? How is the land? Is it fat or lean? Are there trees in it or not? Make an effort to get some of the fruit of the land. And then it says, now the time was the time of the first ripe grapes. So we know exactly when this is. It's July. Because that's when the first ripe grapes tend to appear in the land. So they went up spied out the land from the wilderness of Zen as far as Rehob at Lebo Hamat. And when they had gone up into the Negev, they came to Hebron. Remember Abraham's area, Hebron? Where Ahiman and Shishai and Talmai, the descendants of Anak, were there. I'd make a joke and say it's the descendants of the Sleestacks, but you'd have to know land of the lost and you'd have to grow up when I did to know what I'm talking about. So the descendants of Anak were there, and then in parentheses, now Hebron was built seven years before Zoan in Egypt. Remember that. Then they came to the valley of Eshkol, which means the wadi of the cluster. Because in this wadi, in this valley region, are clusters of grapes everywhere. It's 
So they called it that. And from there, they cut down a branch with a single cluster of grapes and carried it on a pole between two men. How big were these grapes? What are you talking, like basketball grapes? Huge. And some of the pomegranates and the figs, and they brought all this. And the place was called the Valley of Eshcol because of the cluster, which the sons of Israel cut down from there. Some critics deny Moses as the author of Torah. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Torah, what we call the Pentateuch in Greek. They say, Moses didn't author that. I know he's a major player. Maybe he wrote down some things, but someone else compiled it much later. It, it couldn't have been Moses. Well, a couple things to know. Number one, Jesus said it was Moses, and that's good enough for me. Anytime Jesus affirms an author of Scripture, and of course God is the author, but I'm talking about if, if he affirms the human hand that wrote it down, I'm just going to take it that that's what it is. And Jesus said, it's Moses. So I believe that. Jesus, by the way, also affirmed Daniel the prophet, the entire book of Daniel. It was not written after the fact. It was written when Daniel wrote it because Jesus said so. Well, that's awfully simplistic, Rick. And I say, thank you. I'm trying to simplify my life. Jesus affirmed it, but the Bible affirms it as well. And, and here's an example of this. Look at that verse 22, per parenthetical insert. Now, Hebron was built seven years be before Zoan in Egypt. Who knows that? Who would know that? Only Moses could have known this, my friends. Why? Zoan was, well, it was a secret place known only to the pharaohs and their immediate families. People of Egypt didn't know Zoan existed. So they wouldn't have known where it was. But the pharaohs knew. It was a hideaway, heavily guarded, secreted away where the pharaohs could get away and no one would know where they were. And their immediate families knew of Zoan as well. And for centuries, while there were hints and suggestions of it, people denied that a place called Zoan even existed until 1939. When French Egyptologists... Jean-Pierre Marie Montet discovered the ruins of Zoan. Fascinating. In the Nile River Delta, and you can go read the story. I mean, it's, it reads like Indiana Jones. They found there in Zoan more riches and gold than was found in King Tut's tomb. I mean, it was it, mind-blowing. The dig at Zoan revealed archival libraries of all the pharaohs and, and their families, more information than we'd had before, including their genealogies and their secrets, all there found discovered at the place called Zoan. It has another name you might be familiar with, especially if you've seen the first Indiana Jones movie. It's called Tanis. Tanis, Zoan. A secret place. How could an Israelite or a Midianite shepherd like Moses comes back for the people of Israel? How could he know anything about Zoan or Tanis? He'd have to grow up in Pharaoh's court. Oh. So we have internal evidence. And understand that in the scriptures, that's all over the place. The internal evidence, the proof that connects with archaeology and connects with history and is affirmed by the Lord Jesus himself. So there's no question in my mind that Moses was the author or the writer of the God-inspired Torah. So continuing, verse 25. When they returned from spying out the land at the end of 40 days, by the way, Note this, I'm, I don't have time to go into it tonight, but 40 days is always a time of testing. It's always testing in the Bible. 
It's where you're tested. It's where you're proven. It's wilderness time. Jesus was 40 days in the wilderness. The spies, 40 days in the wilderness. They would yield 40 years. But 40 is the number in the Bible of testing. It's always about testing. It's never a comfortable number. So they were there 40 days. And verse 26 says, They proceeded to come to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the sons of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. And they brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. So this starts out really good. <laughs> Look at the size of these grapes. <laughs> we found them in the King Cluster Wadi. And we had to carry them on poles. And, and yeah, the, the land is fruitful and there are trees and there, there, there's growth there and it's abundant and it's beautiful. And thus they told them, verse 27, and said, we went into the land where you sent us and it certainly does flow with milk, that means there are goats everywhere, and honey, which would be both honey from bees, but probably more likely date palms, and we just talked about date palms recently, date palms all over the land, because they make this fantastic date palm honey there in Israel, still to this day, and this is its fruit, and so they're showing all the fruit and talking about this, and then in verse 28, nevertheless, Two of the most faithless words you can speak in the wilderness. All that God has promised is good, but. All that God has promised, yet. All that he said is there, really is there. Nevertheless, the word in the Hebrew, and this is going to be easy for you to remember, is a pesky little word. It's a pesky. A pesky. It's two words. And the way it's written, it is what scholars call an adversative conjunction. So it ties into the next thing being said, but with a strong negative shift. Yeah, the land is fruitful, beautiful. Here's the fruit. Nevertheless, nevertheless, the people who live in the land are strong. The cities are fortified and very large. And moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there. And Amalek's living in the land of the Negev and the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites are living in the hill country and the Canaanites are living by the sea and by the side of the Jordan. Hang on just a second. No kidding? Really? The ites are all there? This is not news. They've known this for 400 years that these people were living here. Look at the list again. The Amalekites, which by the way, who did they defeat at Rephidim? Do you remember? Give you a hint, I just said it. They defeated the Amalekites, so who cares if the Amalekites are living there? They're already whipped. We beat that team, took them out in the first round. And the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites and the Canaanites. And my friends, God named all of these nations 400 years earlier when he made the promise to Moses in Genesis 15. They're going to come back to the land of these same people. And I will restore them. And they're going to come back and take the land. It's going to be theirs. I promise it to you, Abraham. The people would know this. They have 400 years of knowing these are the people that we're going to face. So, so giving the list here shouldn't be a nevertheless. It should be a no duh. <laughs> of course. You know what it's like saying? It's like saying, listen, if you're going to go camping in the Cascades, be careful. There are wolves out there. Yeah. It's the Cascades. Of course there are wolves out there. What are you afraid of? You know. 
Well, the question is not, are these nations here? The question is, need we fear them? Continuing on, he says in verse 30, or it says in verse 30, then Caleb quieted the people before Moses. The word quieted is literally commanded to silence. Because these 10 weaklings are stirring the people up and they're starting to grumble. Oh no, the Hittites and the Amorites and the termites, they're all there. What if we see the flashlights? I mean, they're, they're not even thinking straight. He's got them all stirred up and so Caleb commands them to silence. I love Caleb, mad dog. Quieted the people and he said, we should by all means, listen to this, go up and take possession of it for we will surely overcome it. Caleb counters the cowards with covenant language. Get that. He counters the cowards with covenant language. And there is something for us to learn in this. He uses the phrase, go up, ascend, aloha, in the Hebrew. He uses the phrase, take possession, yarasnu, which means occupy. And these are covenant words. This is the language of God to Moses, the language of God to Abraham. Your people are going to go up. They're going to take possession. This is the language that had been spoken to them. Caleb is repeating what he has faith to repeat. Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 21 said, we read this earlier, see, the Lord your God has placed the land before you. Go up, take possession. As the Lord, the God of your fathers, has spoken to you, do not fear or be dismayed. Moses said that before the spies went on their 40-day venture. Go up, take possession. Listen, the language of faith always rings true of the word of God and the promises of God. You know where there's faith? When a mouth opens and you hear the word. You know that your faith rises, doesn't it, when you speak the promises of God? When you quote a scripture or speak a word that you know from the Lord, your faith increases. That's what we read as we opened up earlier. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 11. This commandment which I command you today is not difficult for you, nor is it out of reach. It's not in heaven that you should say, who will go to heaven and get it for us and make us hear it that we may observe it. Nor is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will cross the sea for us and get it for us and make us hear it that we may observe it. But the word is very near you in your mouth and in your heart that you may observe it. The word is near. And Caleb has all the confidence because he's speaking covenant language. He's speaking the word of God. Take possession. Go up. Paul takes hold of this idea. And he says, Romans chapter 10, verse 8, what does it say? And he quotes Deuteronomy 30. The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. And then Paul explains what that means. He says, that is the word of faith which we are preaching, that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus says, Lord, and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You can be confident in that because as you speak the word, it's coming forth from the heart, and as you speak from the heart that truth, you have confidence in your salvation. You know you're gonna take the land. I haven't seen the millennial kingdom. I know it's coming. Because of the word which I have heard, and it's entered the heart, and it comes out of the mouth. Well, back in Numbers 13, verse 31, Caleb is all confidence. The other 10 are all trembling. And the men who had gone up with him, verse 31, said, we're not able to go up against the people. They're too strong for us. 
So they gave out to the sons of Israel a bad report. That phrase bad report can also be translated a slanderous or evil report. Slanderous, that is, it's not true. But it was intended to shake the people. A bad report of the land which they had spied out saying, the land through which we have gone in spying it out is a land that devours its inhabitants. Wait a minute, you said it was fruitful. What is like crazy man eating fruit? No, this land devours, and all the people whom we saw in it are men of great size. And then to cap it all off, verse 33, there we also saw the Nephilim. Uh-huh. That's right, the sons of Anak are part of the Nephilim. And we became like grasshoppers in our own sight, and so we were in their sight. And my friends, verse 33 is an outlandish parenthetical claim to discourage the sons of Israel. It is not a statement of fact. And this has been debated, so let me be really clear on this one. They say the sons of Anak are part of the Nephilim. Were they? Are they really? Now you have the Anakim, the Nephilim. Maybe you're thinking, wait, Nephilim? What's, what's the Nephilim? First of all, let me say this. Numbers 13 is the first time the sons of Anak are even mentioned in the Bible. We haven't heard of them before now. And chances are very good most of the sons of Israel hadn't heard of the sons of Anak before now either. And so the spies go in and they find out about these people, the Anakim or the Anakites, the people of Anak, and they're tall, they're tall buggers. Goliath would be of that line. So they're a little concerned. Actually, Goliath wouldn't because he was a Philistine. Forget that I said that. Let's just X that out. Goliath was not an Anakim. He was a Philistine. Totally different. Anyway, the sons of Anak, and the only time in the Bible that we read that they are connected to the Nephilim is when the spies are giving a slanderous report. Truth is, I heard my brother Jake over here to my right giving a negative. Uh -uh. The sons of Anak are not connected to the Nephilim. They can't be. The Nephilim were wiped out in the flood. Now, some will say, ah, yeah, but, but it says right here that the sons of Anak are part of the Nephilim. Who are the Nephilim again? These were the Giborim, is the word in the Hebrew, the mighty men of old. In fact, what came out of, in Greek mythology, oh, what are they called, the big monsters? The Titans. In Greek mythology, the idea of the Titans, we believe, came from the Nephilim. They were mighty great people. Here's what the Bible says. Just let the Bible be your truth here. Genesis 6-4, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days. That's pre-flood. And also afterward, some will say, see, afterward, they were here after the flood. Hold on. They were there on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came in to the daughters of men, which was a pre-flood occurrence. It's not after the flood. It's they were in the land in the early days and after that, at that time, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men. What are we talking about? The scriptures are pretty clear. Sons of God means angels. And you can say, how's that possible? I don't know. But sons of God means angels. And daughters of men referring to women of natural flesh. And something took place there. And they bore to them. And these were the mighty men, the Giborim, who were of old men of renown. Powerful, great, strong giants. The Nephilim. The Nephilim, again, 
were wiped out in the flood. They were part of the reason that God had to flood the world because the bloodline of humanity got down to eight people who were not infected. Eight people who were considered righteous. God needed to clear the land. Why? Because if he hadn't, the bloodline would have become so corrupted no Jesus could ever have come into the world. You could say God brought the flood to save humanity. And so the Nephilim wiped out. Let me give you what three different um, conservative and intelligent scholars, one, a Jewish scholar, had to say about this passage. A guy by the name of Ashley said, though the Israelites might not, might not have known who the Anakim were, they would be familiar with the story of the Nephilim. And connecting these men of great size with the Nephilim is an exaggeration for rhetorical effect. It's exactly what the ten spies were trying to do. Oh, we saw the Nephilim. The Nephilim, the Nephilim. You can just hear it rumbling through the camp. The sons of Anak, they're, they're offspring of the Nephilim. And no one at that point stopped and said, hang on a minute. The flood. They were all in too much of a panic. Jacob Milgram, Jewish scholar, said their identification with the Nephilim could only have one purpose, to instill greater fear in the hearts of the people of Israel. For the gigantic stature and strength of these Anakites are now being measured against a primordial and divine dimension. It's got to be the Nephilim. Oh, giants in the dark. I like what Wenham says. He just says, it's fantastic hyperbole. That's all this is. This parenthetical aside is most likely, as I'm saying, the faithless spies' interpretation of who the Anakim were, saying, and we became like grasshoppers in their sight. And that is all it took to break the people into an all-out, full-scale, fee-fi-full-fum, five-alarm meltdown. They lost it. Listen to this. Revelation 21, verse 7, says, He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. The cowardly and unbelieving are in interesting company, aren't they? You go down the rest of the list and you go, that's some pretty vile sin, but it starts off with the cowardly. You know what it takes to be cowardly? We're not talking about being wise in our estimation of what is dangerous out in front of us. We're talking about fearing things we ought not fear because we trust in the Lord. Because we know God's going to get us through the wilderness no matter how bleak things may look. The cowardly and unbelieving will end up, my friends, in hell because they reject simple trust in the Lord. They just won't trust God. And so in this story, the ten saw huge foes and the two saw huge fruit. The ten saw great walls and their faith fell flat. The two had great faith and they would see Jericho's walls fall flat. The ten feared giants. Joshua and Caleb feared God. And so they were ready to go fight. And that, my friends, is a very clear difference between eyeballs and hearts one is just optical illusions the other one is spiritual truth 
One is temporal, the other one is eternal and absolute. Optically, we became like grasshoppers in, their, in our own sight. Spiritually, the vision of faith says this. Isaiah 40, verse 21, do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been declared to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. Hey, you may feel like a grasshopper. You may feel puny compared to what you're up against. God is never puny. God is never concerned with great difficulties. Massive, giant problems don't concern the Lord because all the inhabitants of the earth are like grasshoppers to him. Chapter 14. Then all the congregation lifted out their voices and cried, and the people wept that night, and all the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole congregation said to them, would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become plunder. So you can tell who's crying here. It's the men, a bunch of whiny babies. Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? And so they said to one another, let's appoint a leader and return to Egypt. In other words, we're done with Moses and Aaron. Let's get someone else who will take us back. Wyndham says in all the Hebrew words, the verbs pile up in an attempt to express the passions unleashed. And, and, unleashed. and you see the words there, cried and they wept and they grumbled and it's just, it's just kind of this explosion. And it, Hebrew scholars tell me, and I can't see this because I primarily read English, but Hebrew scholars say chapter 14 verses 1 through 4 explodes in the Hebrew. The rest of Numbers is actually pretty cut and dried as you're walking it through. There's not a whole lot of wild verbs, but you get to chapter 14 and the end of 13, and it's just it's like this, this crazy maelstrom of, of, of insanity, of lack of faith, of, of fear. And then in verse 5, Moses and Aaron fell on their faces in the presence of all the assembly of the congregation of the sons of Israel. My friends, that is humble leadership. They're not shouting them down. They're not raising a fist. They've fallen down in prayer. <laughs> I heard this years ago. It said that it will be easy to recognize Moses in heaven because he'll be the one with the flat nose. <laughs> For all the times he falls flat on his face before the Lord in prayer. Moses and Aaron, they're on their faces. They are beside themselves. They're before the Lord and they're just saying, what? What do we do with this? Can you imagine being Moses in that moment? It would have felt like the end. It's over. We're, we're, we're not going anywhere. We're done. Verse 6, Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, of those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes. So they are just, they can't believe what they're seeing and hearing. And they spoke, this is Joshua and Caleb now, to all the congregation of the sons of Israel, saying, the land which we pass through to spy out is an exceedingly good land. And then listen, verse 8, if the Lord is pleased with us, then he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land which flows with milk and honey. If the Lord is pleased with us, well, how can we make the Lord pleased with us? Without faith, it is impossible to please him. And right now, the people of Israel and the ten are without faith. 
And so by contrast, Joshua and Caleb are saying, we've got to please him. We can please Hebrews eleven six. 6, without faith it's impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is. And that he's a rewarder of those who seek him. It's not about looking at the land. The vision is the one that looks at Jesus and trusts in him. And has confidence because of who he is, not because of who we are. It takes faith to please him. Verse 9 only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land. They will be our prey. Their protection has been removed from them and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. And that word pray, you might jot it down in the Hebrew is lachem, bread. I love it. They'll be our bread. There's a great application there. The manna which had fed them for two years had been their bread. And Joshua and Caleb are saying, when we go into the land, they'll be our bread. We're going to eat them up. They're not being cannibals. No. I have so many cannibal jokes, I can't go there. <sighs> don't, don't do it. I know, you're just giving me the cold shoulder. Let's keep going here. <laughs> I know. Lachem, they will be our bread. And then in verse 10, but all the congregation said to, said to stone them with stones. That's the response. Kill these guys. Take them out. Then the glory of the Lord appeared in the tent of meeting to all the sons of Israel. Whoa. <laughs> That's like dad's home. <laughs> the glory of the Lord appears. When are we going to stop fearing the world? When are we going to stop worrying about government and fearing vaccination, no vaccination? When are we going to stop letting all of the temporal stuff in the wilderness determine our faith? It's the Lord. 1 John chapter 4, verse 4 says, You are from God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Simple. The sons of Israel, our example, feared the world. They were terrified of the world. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 17 tells us, With whom was God angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned? whose bodies fell in the wilderness, and to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient. And then he says this, note this, Hebrews 3.19, we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. Unbelief. Will you trust me in the wilderness, God says? They don't. They won't. And they will not go in because of unbelief. Verse 10, again, the Lord appeared in the tent of meeting to all the sons of Israel. This must have been. You, you want to be terrified? You want to be afraid of something? God will give you a reason to be afraid. He'll just show up. Verse 11 tells us the Lord said to Moses, how long will this people spurn me? How long will they not believe in me despite all the signs which I have performed in their midst? Note this, signs don't beget belief. Don't go chasing after the signs to try and generate faith. It doesn't work. It never works. 
Jesus said in Mark 16, signs will follow those who believe. So I have no question about the signs. We were talking about this earlier today. I believe in the signs. I believe in the power of God and the miracles of God and all the wonder works of God. It's all true. It's all legitimate. It's all biblical. And I believe it's still for today. I believe in the signs, but I don't believe because of the signs. Signs follow the believers. And the signs follow the believers because the believers aren't really concerned with the signs. We're concerned with the Lord. Our focus is God. He said, I did all these signs. Have you ever wonder why the children of Israel didn't believe after all the things they had seen with their eyes? It's because signs do not beget faith. Verse 12, God says, I will smite them with pestilence and dispossess them, and I will make you, Moses, into a nation greater and mightier than they. And by all appearance, God is done with Israel. This, this is, I mean... The drama of Numbers 13 and 14 cannot be overstated. This is wild what's happening here. People are weeping and moaning. They want to stone Joshua and Caleb. Moses and Aaron are flat on their faces, crying and weeping and praying. And, and it's just complete craziness. And the Lord shows up, no doubt, at that point, it got real quiet. And then God says, that is it. I'm done. Moses, let's just work with you. We'll start over. It's a do-over. You know what? It's interesting. This is the second time God has said that with the people of Israel. Second time. He said the same thing back in Exodus chapter 32 at the Golden Calf Rebellion where he told Moses, let's do it over. Let's start, right, I'll start brand new with you. Do-over time. So you got to ask the question, well, is God arbitrary like that? Does he shift and change and... You know, is he moved emotionally like that? That he's like, oh, you know, okay. Here's the question. Is God really done with Israel? I might add to that, is he ever? The answer is no. Because if God is through with the Jew, what makes you think he won't ever be through with you? God's not done with Israel here. Well, what's he saying? He is proving Moses. He's proving Moses to Moses to be sure that Moses isn't done with the people. Given Moses the opportunity, let's just start over with you. What do you think, Mo? Because God is always teaching faith. Even in the person who you would think of the camp of Israel was the most faithful, God is still speaking to Moses and going, what do you think? Shall we just do away with all? I can do it right now. Snapping my fingers, they're all dead. We'll start with you. Brand new offspring. Well, yeah, but Moses is what, like... 80 years old. <laughs> Abraham was 99. Not a problem. We can do this. And Moses, oh, I love Moses. Listen, if you want to develop patience with someone in your family or with a friend, someone who's driving you nuts, if you want a greater understanding of where this crazy person is coming from, Deeper compassion, maybe a stronger forbearance with them. Start interceding for them. Start praying for them. You just you take that person, that person that just irritates you the most. I really encourage you to do this because it changes everything. Take the person who just drives you crazy. <laughs> and rather than discount them, put their name number one on your prayer list. And start interceding for them. Verse 13, Moses said to the Lord, well, then the Egyptians will hear of it. 
For by your strength you brought up this people from their midst. And they will tell it to the inhabitants of the land. Yeah, word travels fast. You don't need social media. You just need mouths. They said, they have heard that you, O Lord, are in the midst of this people. For you, O Lord, are seen eye to eye while your cloud stands over them. And you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Now, if you slay this people as one man, then the nations who have heard of your fame will say, because the Lord could not bring this people into the land which he promised them by oath. Therefore, he slaughtered them in the wilderness. But now I pray, Moses continues, now I pray let the power of the Lord be great, just as you have declared. Yahweh is slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generations. He says, pardon, I pray, the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your chesed, your grace, your loving kindness, just as you also have forgiven this people from Egypt until, even until now. Moses, Moses is interceding for Israel. He is praying. I mean, he's seen what they've done. He's heard the whole thing. He's fall, watched it fall apart, and yet he's praying for them, and he is saying what Paul would later proclaim, and that is Romans eleven twenty nine: for the gifts and the callings of God are irrevocable. Don't do it for them. Don't do it for their sake. Do it for your sake, because it's about you, Lord. It's not about them. They just happen to be the people you chose, but... It's about you, Lord. So again, why is the Lord threatening to dispossess them? To draw this out of Moses. The intercessory prayer is the act, very simply, of advocating for another person or people. It's lifting up another and praying on their behalf. But listen, get this. Intercessory prayer always aligns the heart of the intercessor with the heart of God. So while you think you're out there praying for someone else, what's happening to you is complete alignment with the will of God. You're praying for them. You're praying for their salvation. You're praying for goodness and grace of God in their lives. That's what God wants for them. And they become less irritating and more precious, not only in the sight of God, but in the sight of the intercessor who now has a new vision in the wilderness. You're seeing differently. And by the way, did you hear whom Moses quoted when he prayed. Back in verse 18, the Lord is slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and the fourth generations. He quotes Exodus 34, verse 7, and that's where God is declaring himself to Moses on the mountain. So Moses is now turning the word of God. That's also intercessory prayer. By the way, it's praying the words of God for someone. It's praying the word. It's God's goodness. It's God's heart that Moses is praying. It's his experience of God. This is not you. You are not a God who dispossesses. You're a God of grace and compassion and kindness. And he quotes God to God. I love it. I'm sure God does. And as the intercessor prays, he prays just as the Lord promised. See, Isaiah 65 Verse 24 says, it will also come to pass that before they call, I will answer. And while they are still speaking, I will hear. Why does God say that? Because when the intercessor is praying, their heart is aligned with his heart. 
And so we begin to pray prayers that God can answer. And that's intercessory prayer. Well, you're saying God can't answer prayers? No, no, I'm not saying that. I'm saying we're praying prayers that God wants to answer because they're prayers that he is declaring to the heart. They're prayers he's giving. Listen, God knows what he's going to do with this people. That becomes very clear. Moses doesn't know, and so he starts to pray the heart and the will of God, and in that intercession, well, listen, listen to what God says. The Lord says, I have pardoned them according to your word. What an interesting statement. I have pardoned them according to your word. When did that happen? Well, I pardoned them before you even prayed it, but I knew what you were going to pray, so I went ahead and pardoned them ahead of time. Is that okay with you, Moses? <laughs> I have pardoned them according to your word, but indeed as I live, all the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. Translation, it's already done, Moses. Pardon's already given pre-prayer, but the intercession is alignment. Consider Jesus. Think about Jesus. Isaiah 53, verse 12, he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. Romans 8, 27, he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Romans 8, 34, Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Jesus is constant in intercessory prayer. Because Jesus is our constant advocate before the Father, always praying for the lost and for the saved, Constantly interceding, Hebrews 7.25, therefore he's able to save forever those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Intercessory prayer is just aligning with the heart of God. And even as you're praying for another, that kind of praying changes you, changes me. However, you need to understand one more thing about intercessory prayer it does not necessarily erase the consequence immediately of sin and rebellion. I remember uh, years and years ago, long, boy, long time ago, my brother and I were both in early in youth ministry, a couple of different churches we were working at, and he told me about a woman who came to faith, got saved on a Sunday morning. They baptized her that day. And six months later, she died of AIDS. She was a prostitute. In the streets of San Jose, California, she wandered into the church. They loved her. They taught her of Jesus. She gave her life to Jesus, turned it around. She had a small child. And the church went on to take care of this child. And they loved her, and they were there at her bedside in the hospital when she died of AIDS. Consequences were still there. Someone might say, Well, how could God do that? God saved her. She's home in heaven. Sins washed clean. But the consequence still can be borne out. Verse 22, the Lord says, Surely all the men who have seen my glory and my signs which I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness yet have put me to the test these ten times have not, and have not listened to my voice shall by no means see the land which I swore to their fathers, nor shall any of those who spurned me see it. And let me just tell you, that doesn't mean that this entire generation of Israel was lost forever. It means they would not go into the promised land. That there would yet be among them some who in the wilderness would die in faith, would die having come to faith in the Lord, truly learning to trust the Lord, yet they're going to die in the wilderness so they will not go into the promised land. The consequence of sin. But that doesn't mean they don't have 
forgiveness of sin. The Talmud lists out 10 rebellions of the people, and you can follow it through the scripture. It's absolutely accurate. At the Red Sea, Exodus 14. At Marah, Exodus 15. In the wilderness of Zin, Exodus 16. Twice with the manna, Exodus 16, verse 20, and Exodus 16, verse 27. Two separate events, separate rebellions. At Rephidim, Exodus 17. At Mount Sinai with the golden calf, Exodus 32. That's the seventh time. And then recently, the eighth rebellion at Tabera. You may recall means burning, Numbers chapter 11. Also at Kibrot Hata'ava, which was Numbers 11, verse 4. And finally, the 10th time, the 10th rebellion that's listed and mentioned in the scriptures is right here at Kadesh. They have rebelled against me. They have put me to the test, he says, these 10 times. But also note that the rebellion at Kadesh was led by 10 men whose cowardice equaled putting God to the test 10 times. Verse 24, but my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit, I love that, and has followed me fully, I will bring into the land which he entered and his descendants shall take possession of it. Caleb's got a different spirit. What kind of spirit does Caleb have? Paul says, 2 Timothy 1, 7, God has not given us a spirit of timidity but of power and love and discipline. And I quote that verse to let you know that Paul says we have been given that power. Of the spirit that was upon Caleb, of the spirit that Paul had, that Timothy had, that's given to the church. The spirit of the living God is not timidity, but power, love, and discipline. Why don't the people use that? Why don't the people of Israel have that same spirit? One word, faith. They don't believe. You can't receive what you don't believe. By the way, I mentioned I love to call Caleb Mad Dog. Think about him. 40 years later. 40 years later, they enter the promised land. Caleb will have wandered in the wilderness with the entire young generation that's raised up, trusting God, learning how to depend on God in the wilderness. Caleb and Joshua, a couple of old guys, are going to come into the land with the young bucks around them. Caleb, when they enter the land, is going to be 80 years old. Actually, 85, to be precise. And when they enter the promised land, Caleb wants Kiriat Arba, Hebron. Actually, he wants the hill country above it for his inheritance. He specifically requests that. Why? Joshua chapter 14, verse 11, Caleb speaking says, I'm still strong today as I was on the day Moses sent me. <laughs> As my strength was then, so my strength is now for war, for going out and coming in. 85. Now then give me this hill country about which the Lord spoke on that day. For you heard on that day that Anakim were there with great fortified cities. Perhaps the Lord will be with me and I will drive them out as the Lord has spoken. That's why I call him Mad Dog. Caleb the dog says, give me the giants. Send me to the hill country, I'll fight the big boys. And Judges chapter 1 verse 20 says, they gave Hebron to Caleb as Moses had promised, and he drove out from there the three sons of Anak. He bested the giants. Why? Because he had a different spirit. And you have that spirit. You have that spirit. You can best any giant that comes your way. Well, verse 25, what time? Okay, verse 25. 
Now the Amalekites and the Canaanites live in the valleys. Turn tomorrow, the Lord is still speaking, and set out to the wilderness by way of the Red Sea. You know what God's doing? He's doing exactly what the people said. He's sending them right back the way they came. Go back toward the Red Sea. Start walking that direction. The Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron, saying, how long shall I bear with this evil congregation who are grumbling against me? I've heard the complaints of the sons of Israel, which they are making against me. Say to them, as I live, says the Lord, just as you have spoken in my hearing, so I will surely do to you. Uh Uh-oh, what had they spoken? Would that we had died in the wilderness. So he says, verse 29, your corpses will fall in this wilderness. Even all your numbered men, according to your complete number, from 20 years old and upward, who have grumbled against me. My friends, that's 603,550, you might remember. Surely you shall not come into the land which I swore to settle you, except Caleb and Joshua, or Caleb, son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun. So actually, it's 603,548 are going to die in the wilderness, but not Caleb and not Joshua. Words are powerful. Words can lift up, they can tear down, they can heal, they can destroy. And it is such a lie in this social media sick world that we can fire off nasty emails or text messages or tweets and think they're just gone. They're just out there in the nether. You know what Jesus says? He says, your words are never deleted. Matthew chapter 12, verse 36, I tell you, every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for it in the day of judgment. For by your words, you will be justified. That is when you say, I believe in Jesus. And by your words, you will be condemned. Luke 6, 45, Jesus said, the good man out of the treasure of his heart brings forth what is good. The evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth what is evil for his mouth speaks from that which fills his heart. What are you filling your heart with? So you all here tonight, you all listening at home, what you're filling your heart with is the word of God. And the more we fill our hearts with the word, the more what comes out of our mouth is glorifying to God and confidence boosting for us and love inducing for others. Here's the thing, cancel culture has it all wrong. See, cancel culture is the reaction. It's the, it's the flesh reaction to all of the social media stuff. It's the flesh reacting to social media out of control, people saying things they shouldn't say, making comments they shouldn't make, and so cancel culture says we can control it. We'll just shut people down, and, and that will take care of it. You know what? You can't tame the tongue. People have tried for 6,000 years. James says we put bits in the mouths of horses to control them, but you can't do that with the tongue. Tongue's a wild, fiery thing. So what do we do? We do what cancel culture doesn't get. We don't cancel the language. We go for the heart. God says, give me your heart, and the language will flow. Fill your heart with my word, and what comes out will not be anything you ever want to cancel. Again, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. Verse 29. 
I already read that. Verse 29 says, your corpses are going to fall in the wilderness. And then he goes all the way down to verse uh, 31. Read verse 31. Your children, however, whom you said would become a prey, I will bring them in, and they will know the land which you have rejected. But as for you, your corpses will fall in the wilderness. Your sons shall be shepherds for 40 years in the wilderness, and they, watch this, they will suffer for your unfaithfulness until your corpses lie in the wilderness. Is God cursing the kids? No. He's acknowledging the fateful impact of one generation on the next. This is what's going to happen because of your choices. This is what your kids are now going to face. Your kids are going to be in the wilderness for 38 more years. They're going to be shepherds out here. They're not going into the promised land yet. I'm going to bring them into the promised land. You know how how apt that is. Think about all the human dysfunction in all of the families of, of the world and how messed up things get. And yet, while, while a child in a dysfunctional family with perhaps an abusive father or an absent mother or whatever the situation is, the child feels like sometimes, man, I've spent 48, 38 or 40 years in the wilderness, but Jesus, Jesus is going to get him to the promised land. And I see more people coming to faith in Jesus in adulthood who were not raised to know him when they were kids. Dysfunctional mess, and yet they find their father in Jesus. And he saves. But there is impact generation to generation. That's why God says, I will visit the third and the fourth generations. He's visiting every generation to see if they will acknowledge him as Lord and Savior. Now, verse 34 According to the number of days which you spied out the land, 40 days, for every day you shall bear your guilt a year, 40 years, and you will know my opposition. Now, by the way, the grace of God is this. They would actually only be 38 years. He's going to count the first two years <laughs> from Egypt now to Kadesh Barnea. We'll count that. So it's a total of 40 years. And he says, and you will know my opposition. You want to be opposed to me? I'll show you what that's like. Verse 35, I, the Lord, have spoken. Surely this I will do to all this evil congregation who are gathered together against me. In this wilderness, they shall be destroyed, and there they will die. As for the men whom Moses sent to spy out the land and who returned and made all the congregation grumble against him by bringing out a bad report concerning the land, even those men who brought out this very bad report of the land, that's the ten spies, died by a plague before the Lord. We're talking about that day. Those 10, done. But Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh remained alive out of those men who went out to spy out the land. When Moses spoke these words to all the sons of Israel, the people mourned greatly. And you're not going to believe what they're going to do next, but you're going to have to wait. We'll come back to that. I'm going to pause here until Sunday, but I want to say one last thing to you tonight. Listen to this. Jake said something last week that really stuck with me, and I went, it was one of those, aha, had never thought about that, but it's absolutely spot on true. Go back to verse 22 and 23 and listen again. Surely all the men, God speaking, who have seen my glory and my signs which I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness and yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not listened to my voice shall by no means see the land which I swore to their fathers nor shall any of those who spurned me 
see it. Who does that describe? It's that entire generation of the sons of Israel. It's the adults. It's the leaders. It's the men defined as the men from ages 20 to 60. Okay, so it's that whole generation. God's going to move that generation out. They're going to die off in the wilderness, and the next generation coming up is actually going to enter the promised land. Not a single person, with the exception of Joshua and Caleb, not a single person who saw his glory and saw his signs in Egypt will enter the land. So he's going to raise up a generation that had not seen and yet believed to bless them by giving them across 38 years of shepherding in the wilderness, he's going to be giving them through Moses. Moses is going to be with them all the way back to the edge of the promised land again. He's going to be giving them a vision, a vision for a land that they can go take, a vision for the land of promise. Here's the thing. That entire generation did pass away. What a contrast. Jesus said in Matthew 24, 32, Now learn the parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. So you too, when you see all these things, recognize that he is near right at the door. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, Jesus said. (laughs) But my words will not pass away. And so by contrast, we have this beginning of the nation of Israel, when you get down to the end of the nation of Israel, the fig tree generation is going to make it through. Not all of them. Zechariah 13 tells us pretty graphically two-thirds will be lost. But a third is going to come through the fire. The remnant of believing faithful Israel will come through the fire and they will make it through into the kingdom that's been promised as far back as David and further. And so will you, by faith in Jesus Christ. Again, the word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching. And again, for whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. Our faith. God says to you, says to me tonight, do you trust me? here in the wilderness? Do you trust me? And and I want to ask one last question. How does the land look to you right now? You see fortified opposition, insurmountable walls, huge giants. They're all optical illusions. They're temporary. They will all fall down. Or do you see milk and honey and fruit and I'm getting hungry? That's spiritual vision by faith. See the promises of God and trust him. Father, we thank you for the word before us tonight. We thank you for, Lord, your determination to give us the example of the people of Israel. I think what's difficult about it, Father, is we see ourselves in them. We know our tendency to become fearful and doubtful and grumble and shudder at difficult things. Father, call us out. Call us out. Call us out of our pride. Call us out of our arrogance. Call us out of our foolishness. Call us out of unbelief. Lord Jesus, we declare again tonight, we believe, help our unbelief. 
And may we be a people who can stand up and say, I trust the Lord. I trust the Lord. Ah, Jesus, we do trust you and we love you and we worship you tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.